Welcome to episode 7 of 514 Beltway to Bytown podcast. My name is Jeff, and with me is my longtime friend Todd. This podcast is recorded remotely with me being in D.C. and Todd in Canada's capital city of Ottawa. Remember, everything we say could be fact or fiction. With us today is Sean Jaffrey, a great friend of mine from St. Lambert who now resides in Texas. Welcome, Sean. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you, Sean. Hey, how is uh, the coronavirus treating you? It hasn't touched me yet, thankfully. We've been, uh, we've been very, very careful. We've been following all the precautions put out by our government. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, we've dodged it so far. Excellent, excellent. So, Sean, for our listeners, tell us how someone from Montreal made his way down to now living in Texas. Okay. Uh, well, again, I was living in Montreal for several decades found myself at Concordia University in the Recreation Therapy Program, which, by the way, is, is a great program in Canada. I had to do an internship, which is about 15 weeks under a certified individual in the field. And I went online, I started looking, and I found a little post-acute brain injury rehab facility at the time called Transitional Learning Center, located in Galveston, Texas. And of course, living in Canada all my life, all you get from Texas is, you know, everything's bigger in Texas and cowboys and steers and lifted trucks. And I thought, why not just head down, do 15 weeks, experience Texas, say I've been there, then come on back and finish my life in Montreal. So I came down, I did the internship. My supervisor at the time was actually from the Sioux, from Sioux St. Wow. Marie, Ontario. And she told me uh, she had almost the same story as I did. Like, let's just come on down and, and experiment. And she said she fell in love with it. And so she stayed. But, of course, being a, you know, such a, a staunch Montrealer, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to live in Texas all my life. I'm, uh, I'm just here for my 15 weeks, and then I'm going to go home, graduate, get a job, find a beautiful French-Canadian girl. <laughs> There's a lot of those. There's a lot of those. Around. Those, those yeah, are still raise, here. <laughs> yeah. Raise a family of 12. You know, the, the typical dream. So I came down, did my time, went home, graduated, uh, and found myself living in my parents' basement for about two months looking for work. Work didn't come. And so I thought, um, you know, what do I do now? So I started looking around. Out of the blue, my supervisor calls me saying that she has now inherited the department and wanted to know if I'd like to move back down and work full time uh, in her position. So I said, sure, I'll do that. Uh, give me a chance to go down, make some money, pay off my debts. Uh, because back then, I mean, the exchange rate, I'm not sure how the exchange rate is these days, but back then I was, it was pretty close to two to one mm -hmm. on the dollar. Mm -hmm. So I went down, I told her, I'm going to give you my best five years. <laughs> I said, I'm going to give you five good years of service, and then I'm going to start, you know, I'm going to come back home. This is, this is my home. This is where I live. Can I just add a piece so, there? Because like, like, two things I think coincided too, Sean, and I've, you know, I haven't talked to you probably since you left Montreal, but it's an interesting story. But just looking at like, you know, externally what was going on as well, right? I think 
like in Montreal, like I'll say it, like, you know, if you lived in Montreal in the 1990s, it was a very precarious time, like politically and economically. Um, did that play a factor at all, like in potentially want to looking elsewhere? Uh, no, not really. Um, although, I mean, that may have had an impact on the job market. And if, I mean, that was, and the field I chose, I mean, recreation therapy at the time, and still really is not as well known as, as the big three, like speech language pathology, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Um, I mean, those are those jobs you can find in almost any facility that deals with special needs populations. Uh, rec therapy is, is the new kid on the block. Um, and because there were so few positions, um, they were all taken, right? And people were not just giving these, they weren't bouncing around, they weren't giving up these jobs very easily. Uh, that was the main thing that, that caused me to look, uh, to look at, to look to the States to get a job. And the fact that I already had a, a position being offered to me, uh, I, I had to take it. I mean, I had to take it. Um, but two years into my best five, my director decided to become a teacher and leave, leaving me the department. So after two years, I found myself as a department manager. And I told my boss then, okay, I'm going to give you my, ne- my best five years starting now. And that was we, right up until they laid me off in 2013. And just to be clear, you were able to do this because you are an American citizen. Yes, right. yes. Okay. I was, uh, both my parents are Canadian. Uh, my dad from Montreal, my mother from the Gaspé. Uh, they were living in New York City when they had me. Mm-hmm. And about t- when I was two years old, they decided to move back to Montreal because New York City was not as nice in the 70s as it is now. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened after you were laid off, Sean? How did you bounce back? Uh, well, I spent six months contemplating everything. Mm-hmm. And then one of my former students reached out to me saying she had uh, a contract company that was looking for a certified therapist to work with the military. And so um, I called, I wowed them in the interview, <laughs> obviously. And uh, I started working for the Wounded Warrior Project right. for uh, the next five years. Hmm. No, it was right about the time Afghanistan, like the major combat operations in Afghanistan were probably winding down, right? So those services were probably more salient than ever, like in terms of the need, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is when there was, there was a huge influx of the wounded coming back uh, with all sorts of injuries, uh, both physical and emotional. Um, and so the contracts just started to pile up and they were, they were really looking for people to help these guys, especially in the community reentry aspect. Once they were medically stable and released back to their communities, there really weren't that many um, places for them to go or people to, to work with them. And the family started to feel the strain um, of dealing with these family members that, that have these injuries. Um, and so my job was to go into the home, meet with the family and the client, um, set up a program and really just focus on helping them reintegrate back into their community, dealing with their issues. And a lot of the issues were PTSD related. So can you share a story of something you might do to reintegrate someone that had uh, a negative experience being in public? Uh, Sure. It really comes down to getting to know the person first. Uh, You're going to form a 
I used to form like a, just a short list of enjoyable activities because you want to start with something they enjoy before you start branching out and trying new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is if you get them back to doing something they enjoy and you start creating positive experiences in the community, it builds their confidence. If you take them out to a movie theater and they have a terrible experience due to like, you know, they have a PTSD flashback um, or the theater's too crowded and they get really, they get really nervous. They start having a lot of issues. They're never going to want to repeat that. Mm-hmm. The idea is to put them in safe activities and to push the envelope very slowly with their tolerance. Well, I, I love that you do that. You know, obviously you and I have been friends for a lifetime and I, everything you do is, is fantastic. It's a very noble profession. Let's move over to a few lighter things about living in Texas. And what's one thing from Canada that you miss living in Texas? Uh, hockey, without a doubt. Hockey. Interesting. And you do have the Dallas Stars, but... Oh, do we? <laughs> do, do, do we, though? Okay. All right. I, I respect that. You're a big hockey player. Obviously, you played... Your, your dad was a coach and big influence on my life as well. Then let me ask you the flip of that. What's something from Texas or even the States that you would think of bringing back to Canada? Oh, man. Um, probably the food. I think that would be uh, that would be a money maker in Montreal. I know Montreal has probably got more restaurants per capita than most cities, uh, but I don't remember there ever being a real solid Texas barbecue place in Montreal. Yeah, I, I agree with that one, eh, Todd? I yeah. don't know if there's anywhere you live, but even here it's lacking in Virginia. I would say definitely Mexican food's pretty pedestrian, unless you you know you you find some out of the way place. Um, but the, certainly the Mexican food is kind of lax. Um, so that's something I imagine like in Texas, there's, you, you probably have a pretty good selection where you are. Oh my goodness. I could, I could go, we could spend four hours just talking about Mexican food. I think. <laughs> I mean, you, Sean, we know the first thing when I arrive there is you take me out for, for tech or for uh, Mexican. Uh, yeah. There's nothing better than, than the Mexican food where you are, but I want to get back to hockey for a second because all three of us being from Montreal, you know, the Habs are essentially a religion in our, in our home city, even though they're falling off a little bit lately. But living in Houston or the Houston area, how does football, whether it's NFL, college, even high school, compare with that sort of, you know, aura that we had growing up with hockey? I would say it's really comparable in terms of uh, football in Texas as hockey is to Canada. Um, here, of course, Houston, the Texans, they have, uh, they're, they're a relatively new mm-hmm. franchise in the grand scheme of things. Uh, recently, they've fallen on, I mean, this past offseason has been an absolute circus. A lot of great personnel um, moves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no question marks down here. <laughs> oh, no, what about, again, go ahead. I mean, you, you guys, you guys hear the stories about uh, Mr. O'Brien and some we of the met him. We doing. met him in person. We met him. That's right. <laughs> oh, did you ask him? Like, it, did you ask him what's going on? Is he feeling okay? <laughs> it was. It was prior to his big moves. Oh my so, goodness. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, Houston is not really feeling good about this upcoming season for a variety of reasons. <laughs> um, but the Dallas. I mean, you can find Dallas Cowboys fans anywhere down here, mm-hmm. uh, and they are they are as die hard football fans as Montrealers are hockey fans, I would yeah. say. 
No doubt. No doubt. Before we move on, I have two questions from a big fan of yours, and she's actually a big fan of Todd's as well. Uh, the listener's name is Marlene. Um, <laughs> her, her two questions come in. What is it you like about living in the U.S. other than the weather? Oh, so she wants to know about the U.S., not necessarily Texas Correct. in particular. Correct. What is it I like about working in the U.S.? I mean, the first thing is, is the fact that I'm able to work. Mm. I think that was the first reason that brought me down here. And it's really a reason why, one of the main reasons why I've stayed. Um, my position really, it's growing a lot faster in America than it is in Canada. Mm. I mean, just to put it, to put it bluntly. Yeah. Well, luckily for you, she has a follow-up question. Excellent. <laughs> What would make you move back to Canada? <laughs> <laughs> the question was really for me, but I'm sending it off to you. <laughs> I figured that, yeah. Right, right. Um, what would it take to get me to move back permanently? Well, I mean, I would need obvious. Let me preface this by saying that this will never happen. Right. I, it, I mentioned that. But there are on. way too many things keeping mm -hmm. me here now. I have, I have a wife. I have a child. Uh, yes congrats you know, yeah thank you all of all of her family is is just a few is like an hour drive away so to get her to go to canada would be mm -hmm. um would be near impossible definitely impossible um i would say i mean if i had a good job if not even yeah i can't move back it's can't just, move back can't what, move what back. if what if it was prior to um Kelly, what if you were a single guy living down in Texas with this job? Is there anything, you know, maybe not job related that would have you moving back to Canada? I mean, other than a terrible, like a terrible situation affecting the country, like if they were to go mm -hmm. to war, um, like with China or another major power that could mm -hmm. reach out, reach out and touch us, I would probably at that point look to get home uh, to the peacekeeping nation of Canada. <laughs> Get home to your patate frites. Get home uh, to the uh, yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I hear you. I, I do miss Putin. I do miss uh, Putin. Yeah, yeah. Todd, um, you know, you're an athlete. Sean's an athlete. And Sean, oh, an interesting guy. Right. Well, you, you both so are. Recreational, you know? recreational athletes, maybe? That's, that's, yeah, I, I'll give you a little more than that. Uh, okay. But, you know, Sean, you're not a young guy. But you fairly, <laughs> you fairly recently took up competing in triathlons. Tell the listeners how that began. I will. I will. As, as soon as I just point out that I am the youngest person on this podcast right now. I'm going to edit that out. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> you just had your first kid. You're about to age real quickly, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. Uh, it started out as just a bucket list item. And I don't know where I got triathlon from. I mean, I, I've only known one other person who is a, a friend from high school who has completed several uh, Ironmans. Wow. But, but she, I mean, it wasn't my inspiration. Um, I just figured triathlon is something that, I mean, I can swim, I can run, and I can ride a bike. Why not give it a try? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, also, it's also a good excuse to exercise. Um, you know, it's a little added motivation if you have a, a goal rather than just a, you know, quote unquote, look good, yeah, lose the, weight. The fear of embarrassment of not finishing a race keeps you accountable. That's, Absolutely. that's how I define mm -hmm. endurance sports, right? 
and when I started, you know, I, I joined a I joined a website that uh, which is completely dedicated to triathletes, uh, both seasoned as well as rookies, and it was very lighthearted, uh, very friendly, very supportive. And the first thing people would tell you is you have to figure out whether you are going to compete or complete. <laughs> what is your goal? If your goal is to compete, then get ready to drop thousands of dollars and lose all social life. But if you're looking to complete, then that's, that's a lot, a lot more reasonable for the average individual. Would, that's interesting. Go ahead. I would Bob. say like being a young, like a young, you're a new parent too, right? Like it is, you can adapt it to your schedule. Whereas if you're a team sport guy, you know, all these softball leagues and rec hockey leagues and basketball leagues, they're all designed typically by single guys who are free from, they want you to be free from Tuesday night to Sunday night between 7 and 11 p.m. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like with rotating schedules and stuff and like, you know, like tournaments every second weekend and stuff. Like the endurance sports, you can play, it's plug and play. You can do it when you have time, which makes yeah. it perfect. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. And one thing, you know, people think, triathlon they think iron man and obviously there's no way you're ever doing a, a iron man i know you <laughs> but there are there are different levels of triathlons can you tell me about the different levels uh absolutely absolutely um well when you start out when i started out i'm not gonna assume everyone's gonna be like me but when i started out i picked a sprint triathlon uh the distance was about 300 meters swim and my first one was in a pool Okay. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, an open water distance swim versus a pool swim are completely different animals. Uh, the bike was only about 10 miles and it ended with a 5K run. So have you uh, done a triathlon in those Gulf Stream waters there? Like of, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have done two open water swims. I've done one pool swim and I had my first Olympic that I was going to attempt. I had the swim canceled because a cold front came through that night and the Coast Guard canceled the swim for fear of uh, having to pull people out of the water. Wow. And an Olympic is a step up, right, from sprint? The next step up would be an Olympic, uh, which I would consider a true triathlon. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not poo-pooing on anyone that does mm-hmm. sprints because, I mean, that's, that's all I've really done. Um, but my, my goal would be just to be able to consistently complete Olympics. Um, that was about a... a 1.5 kilometer swim, 25 miles on the bike, and you end with a 10K. Yeah, that's legit. Uh, the next step is the half marathon. This is one that I, I think I would be able to compete if I had enough time to train. It's mm-hmm. uh, 1.2 miles in the water, 56 miles on a bike, and then a 13.1 kilometer run. Wow. And then, of course, the big daddy is the Ironman. It's the full. It's 2.4 swim. 112 miles on a bike, and then you end with a marathon. Yeah, you're dedicating your life to that one. Absolutely. And like you said, thousands of dollars of of training and bike and so forth. Interesting. What's one thing you didn't know about the sport until you actually finished your first triathlon? Uh, How many different muscles can ache at the same time in your lower body? (laughs) See, I think that's a strength, though, because you look at a lot of runners our age. They're all broken. They have a lot mm-hmm. of overuse injuries, but mm-hmm. the triathlete guys, for some reason, um, just because they're doing different different activities using different muscle groups, as you said, they manage to stay on the road like a lot longer without any injuries. So it's it's actually, and I, I think it's ideal when you think about it compared to just doing strictly just running. 
Absolutely. I, a quick story. The first triathlon I did uh, was a sprint. It was here in Texas. And I was in line to enter uh, to get body marked, where they, they kind of mark up your, your arms with your number. They put your age on your calf. And there's a gentleman in front of me who, uh, when he gave, when, when asked his age, said he was 70. And when I looked at this guy, I thought, this guy is going to absolutely smash me in this race at 70 years of age. <laughs> I mean, he was like a foot taller than me and just wiry and lean and in absolutely fantastic shape. And if, if I could end anywhere close to that at 70, it'd be great. Sure. It's humbling, man. Like I just find like age and morphology, like body type, you can't judge people because sometimes you, you'll see a young mm-hmm. guy you think super fit. And he's actually not that fast. And you'll see an older guy, like, you know, with a, you know, a bit heavier and he'll, you know, leave you in the dust. So, yeah. Check. Sean, what was, what was the hardest part of your training? Jeez. Uh, because I know you and I have talked about it a few times and you've said, why don't you do one with me? And for me, I, I can't get pool time. Right. I mean, I don't have open water here. Right. And it, you know, I can bike, I can run, but I just can't get in a pool. So what about for you? What's, what's the hardest part? At first, the hardest part was uh, actually the transitions. That's one thing. That's one of the mm. biggest things that you're told to practice when you're first starting out is practice your transitions because that's just free time. Mm-hmm. If you can go from one event to the other as quickly as possible, you're, you're shaving, you could shave minutes off your final time. Um, I would say the brick uh, you're supposed to be doing bricks when you train. And that is where, Explain what a brick is. Sean. A brick is yeah, where sorry. you go from, um, you'll do your ride, and then you practice going from the ride straight to the run. So it's a combination of ride, run. And mm-hmm. the first couple of times you do it, I, I, who am I kidding? The first, I mean, I, I, I have yet to not experience this. When you go from a bike for a significant distance and then you try running, you literally feel like a newborn giraffe. Like your legs yeah. are just, you feel like you're all akimbo and they're flying out in all the wrong directions. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this might be a, a weird question. So as you would in the triathlon, you go from bike to run. In training, would you ever consider going run to bike just to sort of throw your body off? I mean, I never have, but I don't see there being a problem with that. Um, yeah. What do you think about that, Todd? I think there'd be no clear... I mean, if you're training specifically for a triathlon, you want to be a specific... In all types of training, you want to simulate race conditions as much as possible there. So I would say mm-hmm. there'd be no... I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have a negative effect on your performance, but I think there'd be no added benefit doing it that way. Right, right. Yeah, just curious. Sean, what advice would you give to someone starting out trying for their first triathlon? Uh, besides, check your, you... besides check your ego at the door. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, definitely check your ego at the door, like Todd said. I would also um, check with your doctor, depending on your age. I mean, like like Jeff pointed out so politely, uh, I was not a spring chicken <laughs> when I started. You want to make sure that your body is able uh, to do these things because your heart rate will climb very quickly. Um, I would say join join a group of some sort. Uh, whether it be an online group to start or check your neighborhood bike shop, see if there's a triathlon group so you can join them for training. 
What's the website you joined, Sean, just so we can have it out there? I was a pathetic triathlete. Okay. That's on Facebook? <laughs> it's, it's on Facebook. It's called Pathetic Triathletes. Okay. So I always tell friends who are single and lament, you know, and complain about being single. I'm like, just sign up for a introductory triathlon clinic or like a, a half marathon thing. Like those, those courses are just loaded with like, with like <laughs> single women, you know, looking to stay fit. Like, I like it. Dating advice brought to you by Todd. There you go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Very good. All right. Let's get on to the, to the real stuff we want to talk about. You guys are both New York giant fans. Um, you know, for, all of our lives, I've known you both to be Giants fans. Let's talk about Eli Manning and whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. What do you guys think? Sean, do you want to go first? I think we're going to have some similar thoughts on this, but uh, Todd, my I'm going to let you go first. Okay. So if we accept the fact that uh, the Hall of Fame is politically driven and accepts a level of mediocrity, um, which it has historically, and you go back to Joe Namath, right? The other New York, famous New York quarterback, you know, well, you, you, we let him in, right? And this guy only had one one playoff win outside the 1968 season, sub 500 record, more interceptions than TDs. We let him in. So if he's in um, on that criteria, then Eli Manning, you know, two Super Bowl MVPs, um, threw more touchdowns than he did pick, 60% completion rating, four Pro Bowls, he should be in. But in my mind, the Hall of Fame should aspire, would I've ideally aspired for more than that? Um, you, I'm not sure he's the best of his contemporaries, right? Like if you look at the big five, Brady, uh, Peyton, Big Ben, Rivers, not necessarily would I put Eli in that group. So, I mean, on the criteria we have, yeah, he's in, but there's probably merits a bigger discussion. So you're saying he's in. Now let me ask a follow-up just for Todd before you get into it, Sean. Is he a first ballot Hall of Famer? No, definitely not. Okay, so you let him in, not a first ballot. What do you think, John? I mean, I have to agree. Uh, he's definitely going to be in the Hall of Fame, but he's going to have to wait. He's definitely going to have to wait. I think the three, the three things that stick in my head are redefining your position, yep. having a big impact on the game, or having dominated your position for a set amount of time. And I think we can all agree that other than, I mean, in terms of big impact, Beating that perfect Patriots team, defeating Belichick and, and Brady twice in a Super Bowl. I mean, that definitely has an impact. But is it worthy of Hall of Fame? Because he certainly hasn't redefined the quarterback position. He's had glimmers. He's had glimmers of excellence, but it's been surrounded by periods of four or five interception games, right? Where we're all kind of scratching our head. Exactly. I think it, the thing is, I think about it, like if you if you went to any fantasy football draft from the time he came into the league until the time he retired, he wouldn't have been one of the top five QBs taken in any of those fantasy football drafts, right? So it's kind of hard. You're kind of looking at it and say, okay, like well, if the Hall of Fame is really reserved, if reserving the Yellow Jackets for the the best that ever played, um, does he deserve entry on two great Super Bowl performances? And that's a fundamental question, I guess. Listen, I'm going to argue against both you guys. I, first of all, do not think he should be in. I think he will get in, but I'm going to give you some, some facts here. He played 16 years in the league, okay? He made the Pro Bowl four times, zero all pros, okay? His regular season record, 117 and 117. Very mediocre. He led the league in interceptions three different years, 2007, 10, and 13. Higher interception rate than Blake Bortles, Matt Schaub, and Kerry Collins. 
The guy has two Super Bowl wins. I'm going to credit those wins to the New York Giants D-line and an incredible catch. Oh, you should credit you so, should credit the Super Bowl victory to the ref who didn't call in the grasp on the tie on the okay. David Tyree play. Right? right. Or Asante Samuel right. for dropping a, an interception in the end zone. <laughs> right. So to me, he gets in on his name, right? He's obviously a Manning. He's NFL royalty. Longevity. Played 16 years. Never missed a start. And two big wins. And, you know, he's in. But he, he's not a great quarterback. He, he's an afterthought yeah, he's, in my he, mind. He's not he a guy. He gets in predicated on the mediocrity, that, like the Ken Stablers, the Joe Namus that we've led right. in the league. The, the league is basically allowed into the Hall of Fame in the past, right? Which it's, it's almost right. like a legal precedent, right, in the court systems. Like we've created this, the bar, we've set the bar so low um, right. that we're, we almost have to let him in basically just, just on the stats. Yeah, and, and that's it. It's, it's become a stats, you know, Hall of Fame stat. He does have the two Super Bowls. Only one quarterback with two Super Bowls is not in. You mentioned him, Jim Plunkett. The other guys with two are Peyton, Big Ben, Elway, Greasy, Staubach, and Starr. They're all in. So he's getting in, but, again, he's a guy that, in my mind, dilutes the So Hall if he fame. gets in, does Phil Rivers – do we give Phil Rivers a pass? Oh, God, no. He <laughs> well, can't get in. Every Please. measurable, though, every measurable, he's better than him, right? So it's – but no Super yeah. Bowl. Fair enough. Right? I mean, if that's, if that's the bare minimum, I'll, I'll let him in on the two Super Bowls. And to Bowls. me, I always go back to the right. Hall of Fame. If guys are debating whether a player should be in the Hall of Fame, he probably shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> right? Like, like, no one's going to have mm-hmm. this discussion mm-hmm. today about his brother. No one's going to have this discussion about Brady, Big Ben, you know. Uh, right. 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 So. right. Good. Uh, another topic we want to get into, and this was Sean's idea, and I think it's a great idea. He asked us all to share our top five sitcoms of all time. Um, I have my top five. I have a list of five honorable mentions. But, Sean, since this is your idea, why don't you share your sure. list? Uh, this actually started because, you know, with the quarantine, I'm sure we're not the only household that's had a, an increase in our television time. Mm-hmm. And so, we, I mean, we watch a lot of these uh, reruns of sitcoms and I thought, you know, there are so many good ones. And then I started thinking back to the, the good old days. And I thought this would be some, uh, something that your, all, all of your listeners can email in their lists and uh, you guys can put together some analytics later on. Yeah. Please do beltway to buy town at gmail.com. All, all right. right so quick question time. before we begin, are we doing these in order or is it just top five group? I did mine in order. All right. I w- okay. Yeah. yeah. I have All right, I will follow well. suit then. Can I just put a couple of caveats on the li- on, on, my, on my list first? <laughs> sure. Okay. Go for first it. First of all, understanding that probably in 20 years, we're not going to be able to have this discussion, like the idea of a sitcom, like, you know, like Big Bang Theory is probably the last, like, extinct species, like, you know, like, mm-hmm. go on. Mm-hmm. Second of all, uh, we discount, we all agree we're going to discount any Cosby stuff, right? You know, once you become a serial rapist, <laughs> you're excluded from the list. Right, yeah, agreed. And uh, stuff that was kind of like a dramatic series, but had elements of comedy like a mash, we're not including that either, right? Does that get cut out? It's not, not on my list. Okay, good. Go. <laughs> Just had to clear those up. Yeah, can, yeah, can we're I good. throw one other caveat in? Sure. Cartoons, yes or no? Oh. I have none. I, I think, none. yeah, I think, yeah. I, I, okay, I didn't either, but I think, yeah. Interesting. But, I mean, you, I'm, obviously you went right to The Simpsons in my mind, but it didn't cross I think my if mind. Because I think if we were this. to include animated series, I think we all agree Simpsons is the heavyweight champ Absolutely. right there. Yeah, okay. right. Okay, no, I didn't either. All right. All right, so here we go. Go for it, Sean. Yep. I want to start with uh, 
back in the 80s, one I grew up watching was Night Court. John Larroquette. Is this is this your top five? Or no, your these, I'm going to go top five. I'll give you guys my top five. Okay. Okay, this number is your five. number top, five. Uh, we'll go Night Court. Okay. Okay, so guys, can you wow. say a comment on Night Court? For sure. The tough, the tough thing with Night Court is it came out at a time, so anyone who was not of age to watch television in the 80s, Thursday night lineup on NBC was a murderer's row of television <laughs> shows, right? You had Cosby, you know, you had uh, Family Ties, you had Cheers, and you had mm-hmm. Night Court. Any four of those, okay, all four of those were averaging 83 million viewers, okay? <laughs> Put that in perspective, man. Like mm-hmm. the, the Big Bang Theory, like, you know, uh, Sheldon loses his virginity, that's like 18 million. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was really, mm-hmm. like, again, the cream of the cream. So very tough to kind of differentiate between those four, but I like, I like the pick. Uh, Night Court, uh, I've got Parks and Rec at number four. Okay, this that's a good one. one. That's a good one. Good choice. This good one's going to rub Todd the wrong way, but I've got Big Bang at number three. Ooh. Ooh. I'm, I'm not a big fan either, but okay. uh, my number two might surprise you. It's uh, Scrubs. Okay. That's a dark horse. Okay. I like that one. Okay. And number one, okay. I don't think there's any question for me. Uh, number one's got to be Seinfeld. Okay. I got, I, got, I got some of those. I definitely got Seinfeld. I think Big Bang, Big Bang, I'm not a fan, but I will say it's left its mark. Like to me, the great ones should have cultural icons. Unless you've lived under a rock, people know Big Bang Theory. They know the characters. They know the setup. Like so, it's definitely had like an impact in an increasingly different different time when uh, you know we basically have a fragmentation of culture. Like there's so many different options right now for Big Bang Theory to get 18 million viewers. As I said, um, means is significant. So. Good choices. A couple dark horses in there, Sean. I like it. Give me a couple honorable mentions that came close uh, for honorable you. Honorable mentions: The Office, U.S., uh, mm-hmm. Always Sunny in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and uh, probably Three's Company with the. Ooh, with Mr. that's a Ritter. good one. May he rest in peace. <laughs> Very good. I actually forgot about that one. All right, Todd. Give okay, me your so list. my criteria again. I looked at did the change the landscape, the strength of the cast. Are there cultural icons? Is it still funny today if you watch it today? So um, I had The Office, just basically, come on, Steve Carroll, John Krasinski, Rain Wilson, like huge cast. Also, it was the first series that didn't have, like one of the first series that didn't have a laugh track, moving camera. Um, you know, the characters are kind of interacting with the, the, the you know, the viewer. Um, so for me, it kind of left its mark. Uh, number four, uh, so going to the 1970s, if we go on strength of cast, uh, Mary Tyler Moore Show. You think you just had, like, oh, listen, wow. man. Okay. <laughs> Listen, man. Yeah. Mary Tyler Moore and okay, Valerie Bertinelli, two foxes, two old school foxes. Okay. You had Ted Knight. Oh, you had Lou, Lou, Lou Okay, Grant. boomer. Hey, Marlene would appreciate this one. Okay. Yeah, Lou Grant moved again. They they brought in uh, dramatic elements. Um, and it just was a game changer. It was about a career oriented woman in Minnesota, you know, completely out of left field. Um, Check it out. Check it out. <laughs> Betty White, oh, get a younger Betty it White. Okay. <laughs> it was only. <laughs> You're not selling me, Todd. <laughs> okay. Number three, right. Cheers. Because to me, Cheers right. was the heavyweight champ of that, mur- that murderer's role on Thursday nights. Like, you just think Ted Danson, mm-hmm. you know, the last Cheers, that was monumental television. Everybody watched that. It was, you, you could not miss it, right? And just all the, you know, Screaming Viking, uh, Hey Norm, like, you know, like all the, all the cultural reference mm-hmm. points we have that are still around today, predicated mm-hmm. on that cheer series. Uh, number two, Seinfeld. 
this changed the game because I think mm-hmm. before Seinfeld, all the situational comedies had a serious element or they would try to you know, have some air of seriousness in about, about it um, and some sort of moral lesson or some sort of moral code that the characters adhered to. Seinfeld was completely void of that. Um, so, you know, like just you know, with, with all the focus was on comedy and kind of, they, you know, the characters were kind of pretty empty, but, you know, it just kept you laughing throughout. And just the strength of that cast, Jason Alexander, mm-hmm. Seinfeld, Michael Richards. And number one, man, old school, because I think it still holds up and they had the least to work with and they broke ground, uh, Honeymooners. Like you think about Jackie That's Gleason, Art Carney, and Audrey Meadows working with like a, a two-set show, um, doing it live. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically necessitated the creation of TV trays, right? Because people would actually stop what they were doing and actually eat their meals watching, watching the Honeymooners. So if, to me, man, it still holds up. You could put like a 12-year-old in front of Honeymooners today, some of those episodes, and they'd still find it funny, like 60 years, 70 years later. So, yeah, I think that's a good pick. Uh, you know, both of you surprised me. First of all, with Honeymooners and Night Court, I think they're good dark horses. And Sean, your Three's Company was really good. Um, I'm curious, both of you guys. Neither one of you mentioned Friends. Where does that fit in in your? Estimation? To me, Friends was obviously um, really popular with a certain demographic, like you know, people in their their teens and in early twenties. Um, just not to me, not much to the not much to the script, not much to the character development. None of the actors really went on to do anything significant past it. Um, I don't know. Sean, what's your thoughts? Uh, well, if we had allowed my wife to participate, Friends would have been numbers one through six. Well, I think she would have put uh, Cavallari no, in there. No, that's that's not even a sitcom. <laughs> uh, I, okay. I, never, I never got into Friends, I'll be honest. I never got into Friends. People, you know what, man? I hate to go insulting. I'm, like I said, I'm pretty sure your wife's a very she's she's with you, so she's a very intelligent, cultured lady. But it was like I always thought friends were the people that couldn't understand Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was kind of like a default. Like NBC's like default lineup. Like okay, we need a B lineup. Like for those who are kind of like shooting at a lower level, like a lower level. Like, so you know, like we catered it, catered everybody. Very good. Yeah, that's right. I'll I'll be honest. Friends made my honorable mention list. All right, so here's my top five. I'm going to go – these are names you've both heard. Cheers. It's an iconic show. Start out really about Sam and Diane. Diane left the show. The show evolved. It became about the other characters. Just must-watch TV as we were growing up. Number four for me, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Insane show. Great characters. It's really a backwards take on society. Went through a few rough seasons recently, but they bounced back. Just a great show. One that neither of you mentioned. I don't know if it's because you don't have HBO – but Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's pretty you know, good. It's a modern-day yeah. Seinfeld, yeah. Larry, Larry David. Just a great, great show in my mind. Then the top two iconic shows. Seinfeld's my number two. Um, as you said, Todd, iconic characters. Great quotes, right? I was in the pool, master my domain. <laughs> Hello, Newman, right? Just right. It's, it's all there. And then for me, number one, without a doubt, is The Office. Jim, Pam, Michael, you know, Dwight. That's what she said. It, it, you can't miss. It's just a win. My, for my favorite office seat is when so. Jim's like, okay, guys, I got to go to an important sales meeting. And then they cut to him in his car and he's listening to Pittsburgh sports radio. <laughs> 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 he's actually dialing in and saying, giving his opinion on the quarterback moves. Like, you know, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Those are, those are good lists guys. Good list. Um, Sean, more TV. What are your thoughts? You know, Todd and I talk every week about the last dance. What are your thoughts on it so far? Uh, I, I was uh, convinced to watch it. I really uh, was not looking forward to it. I really wasn't a huge uh, Bulls fan back in the day. I was more of a Knicks fan. I know you guys talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. And my, my love for, for Chicago never really blossomed the way they, they treated the Knicks in the playoffs. Um, but I did watch it. Uh, my first thought was I loved watching the progression of the cars that Michael is driving in the episode, you know, where he starts mm-hmm. out with, I forget what it was at first, then became a Porsche, and now he's, he's a Ferrari. Um, he is extremely competitive, a win-at-all-cost kind of guy, but I think that really comes across as uh, pettiness in a lot of scenes. Hmm. Interesting. Has your opinion changed, or is this kind of like your first opinion of him? No, I mean, I always knew he was, he was probably the greatest basketball player, and probably still is the greatest. I'd call him the greatest. Uh, he just desired to win. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't fault him on that. He wanted to be the best. He became the best. He's got the stats. He's got the trophies. Um, but I, I just don't think I can connect with the idea of win at all costs. Like, for me, like, I want... I want to bring my teammates along with me and not run them over if they slow me down. Yeah. There's something that came out this week, actually. It was on one of the talk shows here. Shannon Sharp was talking about it. And a story that came out was if Horace Grant had a bad game, Michael would ensure that he didn't I, get I dinner that. that night after that. the game. And that, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, that really, really – changed my wife Chris's opinion of Michael just hearing that story and um, I don't know you don't you don't have that right you know to dictate whether or not someone eats based on their performance and um, I think the more this goes on people are going to be a little upset with how his competitiveness competitiveness you know became a little bit I don't know over the edge you always hear the story right Bill Cartwright tells the story like uh, early on in his career, Jordan basically told everyone on the team, "Do not pass to this guy, or you'll, you know, you you'll not be on the team for long." So he was kind of isolated, right? Like no one was giving him the ball, and Cartwright basically had to physically confront him and said, mm-hmm. "Listen, I know you're the best player, but keep that up, and you won't be playing professional basketball for very long, <laughs> right?" So, um, right, uh, right. Yeah, you could definitely rub teammates the wrong way, but you know, can't argue with. Absolutely. And you know it's on tonight. So Todd, what are you looking forward to well, seeing tonight? I think we're going to deal with his dad's death. And is there any tie into the gambling or any mm-hmm. perceived perception that there is some sort of linkages there? Um, so this this is the last two chapters. Am I? In, is it neat series? How many? No, we have, we have two tonight and okay. then two next weekend. So I, I do think the gambling and his his dad's death have to be a big part of tonight. But uh, you know, I don't know what else they're going to they're going to talk about you know i'm kind of curious i think they show the clip too where he punches uh steve current practice or they talk about that right so i think it's going to really focus more on that like as sean alluded to how he treated his teammates so i think that's gonna that's gonna Mm -hmm. come out yeah that could change some opinions be interesting uh sean are you watching tonight Uh, it really depends on how late our family get together goes uh probably end up catching it later in the week Mm mm-hmm and and for those listeners, I know you're having an amazing meal tonight, Sean. What are you having tonight to celebrate uh, the first Mother's well, Day for your my, wife? I'm uh, doing Houston famous smoked ribs on the smoker, uh, and then uh, if I do some roast rosemary potatoes. Very solid, very solid. I'm jealous. Well, guys, it was great catching up, Sean. Thank you for joining us. Todd, tell us about Next week, we have week. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Drover. So Jeff is a uh, 
Ottawa-based strength and conditioning coach that works with a lot of high-level athletes, works with uh, Canadian Armed Forces members to keep them in shape. Jeff is also the first and only Newfoundlander ever to play professional football. So he's got a really interesting story how he went from playing no competitive football in high school uh, to making it in uh, the Canadian Football League as a starting receiver. So that's up next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next week. From DC, see you guys. Jeff out. Once I'm in the room.